Good morning, beloved. Hope you are rejoicing in uh, the opportunity to worship the Lord together, and especially that song from Galatians, or based up, uh, from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. What a precious song concerning our need to be people who are living as living sacrifices, right? Uh, unto the Lord. Well, let me open up our time in prayer um, as we begin, all right? Father, once again, we're so grateful to you for the privilege of worshiping you, of offering praises and adoration to you, and pray even for this time that you would grant me clarity, uh, Lord, compassion, conviction, courage to proclaim your word and to be accurate. I thank you for the opportunity that we have as people to gather together and to sing songs to you, lifting up your manifold beauty and perfections, and we thank you for that, Father. May this also be a time of worship and the hearing and the application of your word, and we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, lo and behold, we finally begin the series entitled The Calvary Distinctives, and um, the question obviously has or arises, and people have asked, uh, what do you mean by distinctives? Uh, To which I have answered, you know, basically what we mean by that is a trait or a characteristic that distinguishes one thing from another. Uh, maybe that points to the, a particular thing's uniqueness in comparison to something else. But what I want to make clear as we begin this series uh, titled The Calvary Distinctives is that we as elders, what we call the Calvary Distinctives, we are not wanting to convey to you or to anyone that... Um, uh, by this series, we're talking about things that make us different than any other church that has ever existed in the history of mankind, okay? Uh, maybe uh, something that we're coming up with, these new things that nobody has ever come up with, and uh, we're calling them distinctives. That is certainly not what we want to convey. By these distinctives, what we really want to do, more importantly, is answer the question, who is Calvary Bible Church? And from that, you may follow up with another question. What are those governing uh, or or priorities, rather, that govern and guide what we do as a church? What are those priorities that govern and guide what we do as a church? These distinctives really are that, priorities, essentials that Calvary has stood for in the past. And so we are, on the one hand, reaffirming those, um, some of what has been true of this church, Uh, for a long time. And on the other hand, we are helping crystallize and solidify essential priorities moving forward as a body in the midst of this culture in which we live so that we may all be on the same page as a church as new people come in amongst us. Most importantly, I want to highlight this as we begin this series, that these are biblical distinctives. Biblical distinctives. These are not man-created priorities, new innovative methods for the church. Calvary is not recreating itself or rebooting all that it has ever been about. These are biblical distinctives. So in one sense, if they are biblical, and indeed they are, then you're going to hear nothing in this series that you have never heard before. And that's actually a very good thing, isn't it? Because these distinctives are right out of the Bible. And how utterly necessary it is to let the Word of God speak for itself. To let the Bible speak for itself. And so, 
how utterly necessary for us to open up the Word of God. And really, this is where we begin, beloved. We begin, distinctive number one, with this. Calvary Bible Church is a Bible-centered church. Calvary Bible Church is a Bible-centered church. It is no longer popular to say that in many circles, by the way. Even churches that give lip service to the fact that they're Bible-centered or Bible-driven, when you look at the life of their church, many times they are more driven by pragmatic kinds of things, by programs that are not biblical, than from the Bible itself. So we cannot assume that everybody who says they're Bible-driven or Bible-centered are indeed fleshing that out personally or in the life of the church. What do we mean by being a Bible-centered church? That our desire and our commitment is to center life and ministry on the Bible. We want to uphold the Word of God. We want to honor the Word of God as a standard of truth in everything that we do. We understand the words of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, where Paul wrote to Timothy that the church is the church of the living God. And as such, the church is the pillar, he says, and the support of the truth. The pillar and the support of the truth. Where does truth come from? It comes from God. Who has given us His Word. He's revealed Himself in His Word. He's revealed the plan of salvation in His Word. He's revealed the future realities that are our hope. Truth comes from God. And because the Bible comes from God, it is His truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in Thy thy Word. Thy Word is what? Truth. Sanctify them in thy word. Thy word is truth. In other words, we know what is true and and real and worth living for because the Bible, the word of God, tells us what is true and real and worth living for. We know that. So we want to unabashedly celebrate and proclaim the fact that in this current culture, we are a Bible-centered church, beloved. A Bible-centered church. And I want to tell you the importance of making a loving but firm stand on the centrality of the Word of God in this day and age cannot be overstated. Gone are the days when you and I can simply assume that people believe the Bible to be true. We are living in a culture, um, in, a, in a time, where you, that you may call a moral revolution. Where unprecedented things are happening. Yes, sin has always existed and there have always been challenges in the history of the church. But we are living in unprecedented times where unique things are happening. Where certain things that perhaps we took for granted in this country are no longer to be taken for granted. When such things as a traditional definition of marriage between a man and a woman is being redefined, as you know. Contrary to what the Bible says. When the value of human life is being debated and pro-life advocates are losing that particular debate. When opposition to the, and persecution of Christians is rapidly growing and very soon we're going to experience that in our own country in some way, shape or, shape or form. And it's only going to get worse. But although unprecedented, you and I agree that we expect this, do we not? If we're shocked at what's happening in the world around us, then we need to recognize that the Bible speaks very, very evidently and very clearly about the fact that things aren't going to get any better. We expect this in the society around us. It's going to become more and more secularized. God is going to be pushed out of 
our culture more and more and more. And that provides a degree of opportunity for gospel impact as well. So we shouldn't even see necessarily the secularization of society here in America as a negative thing that is going to lead to persecution and opposition because God has always used opposition and persecution to advance His church, has He not? He has always done that. So we expect this to happen out in the world. But what should be more disturbing to you and to me, beloved, is this. That Christian leaders and churches, fearing the moral revolution before us, are now beginning to to second-guess the truth of God and to compromise the truth of God's Word and succumbing to the mood of the age. Perhaps feeling that Christianity will become irrelevant unless we also do things like redefine marriage. Church leaders and churches are cowering away from the truth and turning their backs on what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's the postmodern mood of the age, beloved. That truth, not, truth is no longer absolute. Truth no longer is objective. That what the truth means for you is not necessarily what the truth means for me, but it's subject to my interpretation. That the truth of the Bible does not apply to me. That I have a right to say what the Bible means rather than submitting to what the Bible actually says. This is the air that we breathe. This is the, the mood of the age. This is the, cult, the culture, as I was exhorting most of our youth first hour, and I would exhort some of you who are youth or children. This is the kind of culture that you, your children are going to grow up in. That where if you have not embraced Jesus as Savior of your life, so that His Word is your guide and the source of your life, then you are not going to pass on the revelation of the Word of God to your children. And your children may grow up in a culture believing that marriage is not between a mommy and a daddy. Between a man and a female in a beautiful covenant of marriage. That may be completely lost from a human perspective unless you grab a hold of Jesus as Savior of your sins, from your sins, and follow Him unabashedly. And follow His Word. So it is not a given anymore, is my point, that a church will be Bible-centered This cannot be assumed anymore. And so I think we need to be reminded of the Bible's centrality. And then from that conviction, if we really believe that the Bible is central to our lives as believers, to flesh out that conviction in our personal lives and in church life, in proclaiming a high view of the Scriptures and the God that the Scriptures reveal. So what I want to do this morning, what I want us to do, beloved, is survey some passages that highlight the centrality of the Word of God. It's going to be more of a survey fashion kind of a study, and we're going to be flipping to to various passages from the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. And and as we do that, as we look at this this, um, this sampling of passages, I want us to draw out some implications and, and applications from these passages of Scripture for ourselves as individuals and as a corporate body. And what I want us to do is hang our thoughts on five examples from Scripture that motivate and encourage us to make it our aim to be committed to the centrality of the Word of God. Five examples from Scripture that it motivate us, that encourage us to make it our aim to be committed to the centrality of God's Word. Number one, a commitment to the centrality of God's Word is seen 
in the devastation that arises from disobedience to the Word of God. The devastation that arises from disobeying God's Word. And I want you to go to Genesis chapter 3 to show you this. Genesis chapter 3. Chapters 1 and 2, as you know, are the beautiful account of God creating the universe, which was pronounced good and, in fact, very good. In chapter 1 and verse 31, everything is perfect. Everything is bliss. In fact, um, God even made man the caretaker of his beautiful creation. Uh, In chapter 2 and verse 15, And the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate, cultivate it and keep it. Man, the crown of God's creation, is given the beautiful privilege of being the caretaker of his creation. And he gives him specific instructions in chapter 2 and verse 16. Full freedom to eat from any tree of the Garden of Eden, but one restriction. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. And here's a restriction. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Very clear instructions from God. You obey my word, there is blessing. You disobey the word of God, there's going to be serious consequences. And those are outlined for Adam. It is death. You will surely die. Well, right after that, we have the beautiful account, of course, of God bringing the the woman to the man having fashioned her as the perfect complement to Adam and he sa- and, and the man responds in verse 23 with exuberant joy when he sees this creature that God has created to be his perfect complement verse 23 the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man For this reason, Moses comes in with his commentary, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice, bliss, beauty, perfect harmony, unity, relationship, unhindered fellowship with God their creator, unhindered fellowship between the man and the woman, The first marriage having been instituted by God and everything is perfect. What changes? What changes? We know, of course, it's the fall of man, right? Chapter 3, the scene shifts in chapter 3 and a new character is introduced. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. We know who the serpent is. It is Satan. And Satan comes in to disrupt that which God had created to be perfect and good, where there's perfect fellowship and bliss. And Satan attacks that. And I want you to notice here in this narrative, in these opening verses of chapter 3, how Satan disrupts that which God had created to be good and perfect. And this unhindered fellowship, he attacks the very Word of God, beloved. Notice in verse 1, And he said to the woman, the serpent says to the woman, Indeed, has God said? Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden or from every tree of the garden? He twists already the word of God. 
And he asks a leading question, a subtle but leading question, designed to sow the seeds of doubt in the woman's heart. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from every tree of the garden, is the right translation, from every tree of the garden? So Satan begins by questioning the clear instructions of God given to them. In fact, God had given those specific instructions to to Adam in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Obviously, Adam had passed these on to his wife and perhaps even added some parameters for her. Don't even touch it. Perhaps that's what she quotes. Very clearly, she understood the instructions of God. And Satan, however, begins to sow the seeds of doubt very, very subtly. Indeed, has God said, Do you think Eve... That God really meant that? Do you think that he, 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 maybe you misunderstood the word of God. Maybe you don't, you, 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 you don't understand. God cannot be that restrictive. Surely he would not withhold something good for you. Now listen, by this point, or at this point, Adam or Eve, or Eve, with Adam there, most commentators believe that Adam was actually there with Eve. Later on, we see that when she partakes of the fruit, he joyfully does the same thing. She gives to her husband, and he partakes very quickly. Most commentators believe that Adam was actually there the whole time, and he doesn't lead his wife. So neither Eve nor Adam step in and shut this down. I mean... They are talking or interacting with a talking reptile, right? They're interacting with a talking reptile. Why even respond? Especially when the serpent is questioning the very word of God, the clearly delineated word of God. I mean, think about it. Wasn't God so good? Wasn't God their all-sufficiency? Hadn't He given them that special privilege of being the caretakers of His creation? He had been so good and so kind, and yet here they are listening to a crafty, deceptive, twisted being who is leading them astray. So Satan begins to sow the seeds of doubt by attacking the word of God, and it only gets worse. Eve answers in verse 2, notice, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Every single word in the text is important in the Word of God. Amen? So what you need to note is that here in her response, Eve actually omits the guarantee aspect of the consequence that God had delineated in chapter 2 and verse 17. In other words, you will surely die. Guarantee. If you partake of this fruit, you will be subject to death. And now, when Satan comes back and speaks to her again in verse 4, he is even more explicit. He for, Forget the subtlety now. He directly, explicitly contradicts God, by attacking His Word. Notice verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Any subtlety in that? No more subtlety in that. In other words, God has lied to you. He is a liar interpretation of His words. He is a liar. I'm telling you the truth. Satan puts himself in the place of God as the ultimate authority, as the truth teller, when he indeed is not. I mean, this is horrific and unbelievable. 
And things get even worse in verse 5. Because now Satan even questions God's goodness. His good intentions towards Adam and Eve. Notice verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what, Eve? God knows that if you partake of this, you will be like Him. God doesn't want you to rise to His level of supremacy. He wants to be unique. Maybe He's a proud God who wants to be supreme. But if you do this, if you give in to this, you can just can be just like Him. You can perhaps be an object of worship. Her response to Satan's attack on God's instruction in verse 6 tell us, That very quickly then she succumbed to her covetousness. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave also to her husband with her, and he ate, and boy was he not just a willing agent, huh? He did not step in to lead her and to stop her. By the way, it's amazing that in verse 6, First uh, uh, John chapter two and verse sixteen, um, the words of verse six are so reminiscent of First John two sixteen, which basically outlines three categories of lusts there that John articulates: the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. John says are not from the Father, but are of the world. All three of those categories of lusts are here in verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's the lust of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes, there's the lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, there's the boastful pride of life. She took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. I ask you, what was at the core of man's fall? Certainly idolatry. But at the most basic level, it was disobedience to the, to the word of God. Rooted in the seed of doubt and and the questioning of God's word and thus his character and his goodness towards mankind. Indeed, has God said? Has God said? And of course we see in the rest of the narrative the consequences of turning our backs on the word of God. A spurning of the word of God and a turning our backs on the word of God is a breach of our relationship with God and an outright attack on his character, on his glory, on his rulership, on his goodness, on his wisdom, on his kind intention and love toward us. And even in that, God still displayed grace to them and mercy by casting them out of the Garden of Eden so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't eternally live in that dead state. We know that this, is, this was all in accordance with the plan of God. But the point is, why did they fall? They disobeyed the Word of God. They spurned the Word of God. Instead, they doubted the Word of God. And beloved, listen, since that time, this really becomes the pattern for humanity if you stop and think about it. This really is the, the, the drumbeat of humanity. Indeed, has God said, has He really said that? Are those clear instructions that he has given? Or is our culture different now? And thus we can disvalidate and turn our backs on what God has clearly stated already. That has always been the issue for every single person. 
Will a person believe the Word of God and obey it and honor it? Or will a person believe the lies of Satan? That has been the issue, beloved, from the very, very beginning. The essence of indeed, has God said, is the drumbeat of our present culture, sowing the seeds of doubt into God's creatures toward God's Word. Have we succumbed to the postmodern culture of our day, which sows those seeds of doubts concerning the Word of God with the question, indeed, has God said? I'm questioning that which God has clearly delineated in His, in His self-revelation. Or do we live out the centrality of the Bible in our lives by obeying the Word of God? See, it is not just enough to say that you believe the Bible and that you are a Bible-centered Christian and yet not lovingly obey what it says. It is not enough. And i got to tell you, this commitment to the centrality of the Word of God has very practical, personal implications for we who are believers. And specifically... Even in, think about an issue of how we carry out our roles within the family. As husbands and wives and children and youth. If we are Bible-centered believers and we want to live out the roles that God has given us to live out in His Word. Husbands, if you're a Bible-centered man, I want to ask you, are you obeying the Word of God in carrying out your role as the spiritual shepherd leader of your home? Are you carrying out that role with the feminization of our culture? Listen, with the feminization of our culture comes the specific challenge of men not living out biblical godly masculinity in carrying out their God-given role as godly husbands. It is not your wife's job to lead your home. It is not your, your uh, wife's job to lovingly shepherd your family, to be the spiritual leader of your family, husband. It is your job to do that in response to the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God and to what God instructs you to be. Wives, I want to ask you, are you obeying the Word of God? Are you a woman who willingly, listen, here's the heart, willingly, voluntarily, lovingly submits to your husband and affirms his leadership in the home as a reflection of your loving submission unto the Lord. As an act of worship, not because your husband is perfect, not because your husband has no sin and he sinless, but because of the fact that you know that as a godly wife, that is your loving responsibility and an act of worship before Almighty God, that you would be the kind of a wife that lovingly, willingly, voluntarily arranges yourself under your husband's leadership. And even affirms that, even in the midst of his own weakness. I want to ask you that, because there are many women asking in our culture today, has God really said that? Even women in churches, believing women, asking because they see the culture around them, asking, is that really what God means by that? Feminism has attacked the beautiful, God-given design of a wife's loving, willing submission to her husband as an act of worship before the Lord and believe the lie that she needs her independence and that to speak of submission to a husband 
from the heart as an act of worship to Almighty God, that to speak of that is bondage. And that it makes sends the message that women are less than men. Well, the Bible speaks thunderously about the fact that women are equal to men, does it not? Absolutely. But there are roles and functions within the home. Are you living that out, ladies? Or are you listening to the cry of the culture around us? If we are Bible-centered women of God, or you are, not me, if you are Bible-centered women of God, then you will not listen to the culture around you that cries out of particular sinful, wicked philosophy that is anti-biblical and anti-what God has called you to live out. Children and youth, are you obeying the Word of God? Are you a child or youth who willingly, lovingly submits to the authority of your mom and your dad? Because you understand that the mood of the age is to actually counter that, to shun accountability, to shun authority. i got to tell you this. Accountability and authority is a very biblical thing, and you even see it in, our, in pagan circles. Authority and accountability are embedded in our very society, are they not? When you in a workplace, is there authority in a workplace, in a hierarchy? Yes or no? There is. Is there accountability in a workplace? In a college environment or educational environment, there's authority and hierarchy. It's very much, these are things that are embedded in our society. Even the pagan culture understands that there needs to be authority. The problem is not that authority is evil or accountability is wrong. The problem is sinful men corrupt authority and corrupt accountability. And instead we become dictators. And instead of using our God-given authority for the right reasons, the God-glorifying reasons, we corrupt it. So for you youth and children, the mood of the age is to shun this. But God has given you your parents to arrange yourself under them, to trust them, even in the midst of their own weaknesses. The mood of the age and you guys know this, as you look at the society around us, is that, is that um, a, a person can be a child until their 40s and 50s now. Playing video games all day long, not embracing the, their, their call as men and women of God to be God-fearing husbands and wives, God-fearing moms and dads, God-fearing churchmen and ladies who serve Christ and the church with loving sacrifice. The mood of the age is not to expand and say, well, he's only 30, he's pretty young still. He's still a kid at heart. Right? Whatever happened to biblical masculinity? Whatever happened to a boy becoming a man at the age of 13 and positioning himself very soon to become a godly husband and a godly father and a godly productive citizen of society that points people to Christ? Whatever happened to that? Listen, for all of us, obedience to the Word of God will bring great blessing. And this blessing is rooted in the character of God who has given us His Word, beloved. A Bible-centered person, Christian, understands that God's Word is perfect and it is what is best for him and her because of the character of God. That the Word of God is perfect because God is perfect. That the Word of God is sufficient because God is the all-sufficient one. That the Word of God imparts all wisdom and understanding because God is infinite in wisdom and understanding. That His Word is sure because God is trustworthy and reliable and unchanging. So we know that if a holy, good, and all-wise God has given us His Word, then it, is, it, then it is what is best for us because of who He is. And we can trust Him. 
We can trust Him. We are a Bible-centered church, beloved, who must not succumb to a culture that now more than ever seems to be asking, indeed, has God said, is that really what the Bible says? In contrast to that, we must be the first to lovingly defend the Bible, to honor it before a lost world, and to live it out and flesh it out and pass it on to the next generation because the Bible reveals God, does it not? The glory of God and His redemption of sinners for His own glory and the future culmination of His eternal plan where He will be all in all. We must pass on that great truth to the next generation. So a commitment to the centrality of God's Word is seen in the devastation which arises when we disobey God's Word as in the Garden of Eden and we question the Word of God. Secondly, secondly, a commitment to the centrality of God's Word is also seen in major defining moments of history. A commitment to the centrality of God's Word is also seen in major defining moments of history. And I want you to go to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. I love the Old Testament as we've been reading through the Old Testament. It reminds me of the the valuable lessons that God imparts to His people continually throughout the Old Testament, pointing His people and calling them back through His prophets and through His servants, back to obey Him and His Word, to give heed to His Word. And we see another example here in Joshua chapter 1. You know the context? Um, During the great exodus... God led a a people out of slavery, and according to the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God, um, He promised them a, a, a nation of people through whom all of the rest of the nations would be blessed, and He's kept His promises. He forms this great nation, and He especially reveals Himself to His people. If you've been doing your Bible reading, you read through Exodus chapter 20 and following, God, most importantly, as the nation was formed, passed on to them what was to be their constitution, if you will. And it was His very Word, the law of God, at Mount Sinai, revealing the Ten Commandments, which revealed and focused upon their love for God and their love for one another, and countless instructions as to how they were, uh, they were to approach the one true God in worship, unhindered worship through the sacrificial system, and how they were to love their neighbors. Beautiful instructions to them for His glory and for their own good. God's law, His Word, was to be their indispensable guide as a nation, promising blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. And so indispensable is the Word of God to the nation that by the time that Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy and Joshua is now the new leader, God wants to remind Joshua and He wants Joshua in turn to remind the nation of two things in particular. And I want you to note this. Verse 1, look at what he says. Now it came about after the death of Moses, a servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. And he's reiterating the promises that he had given to, to Moses to the nation. He's saying, I haven't changed my plan. It's still there in place. Verse 5, 
No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And here's the first thing that Joshua, that God wants Joshua to remember, and he wants him to pass on to the people. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And then look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God wants Joshua to remember, hey, Moses is gone, my servant who was a faithful man, now you are at the helm, I will be with you just as I have been with Moses. Take courage, take confidence. And then secondly, how was God going to guide his people? Now under Joshua's leadership, notice Verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. And watch this, be careful or observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And here's the promise. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So God wants Joshua to know, I am going to be with you. Take possession of the land. I am your power. I am your dependence. I am your sustenance. And secondly, I'm going to continue to guide you in and through my word. Meditate upon it. Saturate your minds with it. Bring it before the people. Read it to the congregation. Embrace it. Live it. Obey it. The centrality of the word of God, even in turning uh, moments that are critical and crucial in the life of God's chosen nation at that time. The Torah, the Word of God, must be their daily meditation all of the day. God would be with them. And by means of His Word, He would guide them. Listen, this was a defining moment for the nation. Moses, their great leader, had just passed away. He was dead. They had been with Him and experienced such great, amazing things with Him. And not only that, but by, but by this time, this is the second generation of Israelites that is getting ready to go into the Promised Land. Most of the people that were over 20 years old died because of the rebellion of the first generation. So these people, here in Joshua chapter 1, that Joshua is getting ready to lead into the Promised Land, are people who have buried many, many loved ones. And what God says to Joshua is, Tell them I am with them and tell them that my word is to be the center of everything that they do, to be their guide, to be their source of life, to be the object of their devotion. Beloved, men come and go, but the word of God abides forever, forever. This was the lesson to the nation then. This is the lesson to the church today. The nation then was to be a word-centered, word-saturated nation because the law of God revealed the great holy character of God and His glory. And the love that they, were gonna, that they were supposed to have for Him, toward Him and toward one another. And Christians today and churches must in the same way be word-centered. This is how God leads His people, especially in defining moments of human history. Thirdly, thirdly, the centrality of God's Word is also seen in the fact that when the Word of God is neglected, there are serious 
consequences. A commitment to the centrality of God's Word is also seen in the fact that when the Word of God is neglected, there are serious consequences. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 22 to show you this. 2 Kings 22. The time and the context of this particular chapter of 2 Kings is right before the southern kingdom Judah was taken to captivity by Babylon. So we're somewhere in the, in the 650 B.C. time frame. And Josiah, at the age of eight years old, rises to the throne of the southern kingdom following Manasseh and Ammon, his father, who have been wicked men. At the age of eight, he becomes king and he reigns some 31 years. And something amazing happens when he's 16 years old. Eight years into his reign, King Josiah makes plans to make repairs to the house of the Lord. And so he instructs at that time Hilkiah, who was the high priest, to go to the house of the Lord, count the money that had been collected from the people to make these renovations and these repairs to the house of the Lord. And in the process of doing this, would you believe what Hilkiah found? Verse 8, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Notice Josiah's response. I mean, think about the wickedness of the times. Think about that. What did God tell Joshua some hundred year, uh, hundreds of years earlier concerning his, his word? That they were to meditate upon it. It was to be their guide and their source of life. By this time, most of the copies except this hidden copy in the house of the Lord is present and alive. And they're not even reading it corporately anymore. That's how wicked the nation had become. And verse 11 says that when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his his clothes, which was symbolic of, of brokenness and contrition, realizing that the nation was indeed guilty before God, if indeed those words were true. And he verified, he sends his servants to go verify that indeed those words are true, and they are. And so Josiah recognizes, man, we are in trouble, in deep, deep trouble. And it is during that time that Josiah leads a a mini-reformation during that time. According to the Word of God, and in obedience to it, he wipes out most of the idolatry, even executing the false prophets. The spiritual leaders, priests, and he reinstitutes the Passover, which commemorates God's awesome deliverance of Israel. They weren't even celebrating the Passover at that time. He does all of this. And so Josiah, beloved, at least for a time, at least for a time, centers the nation on the word of the living God. That is why the author of 2 Kings is is outlining this for us. So we could see the wickedness of a nation that had departed from her God and no longer was meditating and living in accordance with the word of God. In fact, according to 2 Chronicles 34, a parallel passage to this passage, it says that there that Josiah gathered everyone, elders, all of the inhabitants, all of the spiritual leaders, everyone, and read them the law of the Lord, and he charged them to obey the word of God. Many revival. 
It was not long-lasting, of course. A couple of decades later, approximately, Babylon came in and wiped out the southern kingdom. We saw that when we studied the book of Habakkuk, about the same time frame. Listen, it has always been the case that when there is revival amongst the people of God, there is a renewed commitment to the centrality of the Word of God. And in response to that commitment to the Word of God, a holiness and a loving obedience to God's Word, to action, which shows the fact that we are people that are Word-driven. Obedience should flesh itself in our lives. A passionate, relentless pursuit of holiness to be set apart for our great God because of the fact that He has saved us and redeemed us from our sins so that we may be holy and be devoted to righteous living. And of course, the other lesson that we learn here is that when the Word of God is neglected, there are serious, serious consequences. There were serious consequences then. God was wiping out these kings. And eventually, of course, they were taken away into exile because they had turned their back on God and on His Word. Next, a commitment to the centrality of the Word of God is seen in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. A commitment to the centrality of the living God is seen in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. We don't have time to survey, beloved, the Gospels and the way that Jesus constantly manifested this amazing, amazing saturation with Scripture. Constantly quoting Scripture. Constantly pointing to His Father's will as revealed in the Old Testament. But I want to show you one example at the very beginning of his public ministry after he's baptized in Matthew chapter 4. Go there. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has just been baptized at the end of chapter 3. And of course in 3.17 he hears the voice. There's a voice out of the heavens with the Father's affirmation of his Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then it says in chapter 4 verse 1 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Think about the, the, um, the gravity of this moment. From a human perspective, here is our only hope for a blameless, sinless sacrifice who is to die for our sins. And if he falls... And if he gives in, like the first Adam did, to the temptation of Satan, then you and I have no hope. How did Jesus, our Lord and our King and our Savior, the all-sufficient sacrifice, the only one who qualifies to be the blameless, sinless sacrifice for our sins, how did he overcome temptation at his greatest moment of weakness, apart from later on in the Garden of Gethsemane? Verse 3, the tempter came. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. How does Jesus answer? He quotes Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan is a good quarter of Scripture too, except that he twists it and he misapplies it, right? And he's testing our Lord. 
Jesus answers, verse 7, quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. By the way, I submit to you that he didn't have an NASB in his hand. So you know what, Satan, hold on. Deuteronomy 6.16 says this. How did he know the word of God? Memorized. Saturation. From the time that he was little. Right? He responds, verse 7. On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan is still not listening, is he? Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus answers in verse 10, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Another quotation from Deuteronomy. Every single time, beloved, it stands written. It stands written. It stands written from memory, responding to the temptation of Satan at his weakest moment. He modeled and exemplified for us word saturation, if you will. In response to this temptation, he was the ultimate example of one who lived in the power of the Spirit of God and by the guidance of God's holy word. Our Lord modeled that. Verse 11 is glorious, of course. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began ministering to him. Listen, as we saw in Joshua 1, where Joshua is told that God would be with him and that God would guide Joshua and the nation by means of his word, so in this case, the Lord Jesus has the Spirit of God with him and is centered on the word of God. He's a word-driven Savior during his earthly life. What an example. Each time our Lord countered Satan's temptation with Scripture, He knew the Word of God. And He didn't only know the Word of God, but He knew how to rightly interpret it and apply it in what could have potentially been the darkest moment of His earthly life if He fails and does not accomplish the perfect will of His Father. He is our example, beloved, in how to encounter temptation. The last two days we've been at the Purity Conference and one of the great points that Pastor Josh Petras made was that we need, to, we need to fill our minds in the battle with the right stuff. And what he meant by that is word saturation. He talked about John Piper's idea of fighter verses through Desiring God ministry, fighter verses, sending the, the message that we as Christians are in spiritual warfare and what we need to do is fill our minds with fighter verses to counter Counter the evil ideologies of the world, not just sexual sin, but everything, every temptation with the very word of God. Recognizing that that, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is to be our our tool. Reading it, skillfully thinking through it, meditating upon it. Knowing how to, how to apply it to life circumstances and in the midst of those temptations is to be what we're characterized by. That's what it means to be a Bible-centered, Bible-driven individual. Word saturation. Finally, finally, fifthly, a commitment to the centrality of God's Word is seen in the ministry of the early church. A commitment to the centrality of God's Word is seen in the ministry of the early church. And I just want to quickly survey the book of Acts. Go there, beginning with chapter 2. Throughout the book of, of Acts, it's hard to, to miss the point of Luke, the writer. He wants to, to communicate to us the birth and the growth of this beautiful living organism, the Bride of Christ. 
and he does a masterful job under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, of course, and throughout, he gives us these, these progress reports of how the church is doing. Look at chapter 2 and verse 47. After the preaching of Peter's first sermon, the people hear the message of the Word of God from the mouth of the Apostle Peter, and they respond, and they're convicted, and 3,000 souls respond by turning from their sins and embracing Christ. And Luke gives this report in verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. How were they being saved? Well, we know from the context it was the preaching of the Word of God, the impartation of the Word of God centered on the the exalted Christ, who was the risen, exalted Savior. Look at chapter 6 and verse 7. After the first deacons are set forth, Because of the fact that the apostles need to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, according to chapter 6 and verse 4, how is the church doing? Verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading. Progress report, Luke says. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So the word of God is spreading, and and it's evident in the fact that people are turning from their sins and following after the Lord Jesus Christ and the church is growing. Look at chapter 9 and verse 31. There is persecution. This is after the violent death of Stephen. Followed by a great persecution, but God used that persecution to spread His Word into places like Samaria and Ethiopia. And I want you to notice... Luke's progress report in chapter 9 and verse 31, in light of the fact that persecution has taken place and the word of God continues to spread outside of Jerusalem now into Samaria and Ethiopia. He says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Over and over again, beloved, if we had time, there are more progress reports where Luke continues to point us to the fact that the Word of God is going forth, and that is the means, the vehicle by which the the church is growing. Sinners are coming to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer, the exalted Christ, and being added to the church, and the church is growing and maturing. So that by the time that we get to the end of the book of Acts, the last two verses of the book of Acts, and the progress report that Luke gives concerning Paul in his first Roman imprisonment is that he was there proclaiming the word of God to all who were coming to visit him unhindered. Over and over again, a commitment to the centrality of the word of God is seen in the ministry of the early church. And that is what Luke wants to report and focuses on our attention upon that the most important activity that the church should do and must do, not the only thing, must be preaching, teaching, imparting the Word of God and biblical truth. It doesn't end in this pulpit, but it begins with all the little pulpits and as you in the context of the one another's are speaking the truth to one another in love, that as the spoken word goes out, the word progresses and advances in the hearts of God's people. People come to know Christ and people are being, being built up in the faith by means of the word of God. So this commitment of the early church needs to be our commitment as well, beloved. You know, this last week, and I'll end with this, and then, and then Tim Adams is going to come up and lead us in a, in a song. 
This last week, I had the, the blessing and the privilege. We were extend, three of us from this church were extended a gift to travel to Louisville, Kentucky for the Together for the Gospel Conference. And it was a precious time, close to 10,000 people, uh, most of whom were pastors, as well as uh, five other brothers from four other churches. We traveled together there, and it was just a wonderful time. And the theme of the conference was this uh, celebration, because next year, October 31st, um, uh, 2017 is the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. A great time of revival, as you know. And you know, when we think about the Reformation, there are particular doctrines, obviously, like the, the sovereignty of God and justification by faith and sanctification that were solidified and crystallized even more during that time. Obviously, it wasn't that the church was now redefining those for the first time. The Word of God had always been there. The problem is, is that there was a departure from Scripture which revealed those precious doctrines. You know, you can put the attention on crucial individuals, Calvin and Zwingli and Luther. But the thing that, I, that impressed me the most, even heading into this Sunday for us as a body, was that the single most important thing and what propelled um, people to be able to discover the beauty of those doctrines in the Word of God is a return to Scripture. The principle of sola scriptura, Scripture alone. They recognize the need to put the Scriptures into the hands of the people because the Scriptures are the revelation of God's majesty and glory. We stand, beloved, on the shoulders of people God used to pass on His Word. And so our desire as we move forward, and our desire as your elders and as your shepherds is to continue to promote and move forward together with this beautiful celebratory declaration that we want to be a Bible-centered church, beloved. And I pray that that would be your commitment as well as individuals and living out the ramifications of that for how you live your life as well as a collective body. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the preciousness of it. We're so grateful, Lord, for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. We don't have an impersonal God who has not revealed himself to us, but a very personal one. You've revealed your divine perfections and your glory to us. Help us to treasure your word, to love it, to love the God of the word, to remember that it is our mission on this earth to continue to to saturate our minds with your word so that we may be holy people who walk in loving obedience and to pass on that message to others who need to hear what your word says concerning you and, and their sin and the hope of humanity who is the exalted Christ and the response to that message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be a Bible-centered church. In Jesus' name, amen.